Dear friends, we are in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going into chapter 3. And as I was just reading this over before starting to record, I was just thinking how this book of Samuel is such a lesson in politics. And for many Canadians, especially after the COVID stuff, politics is like a dirty word. But it does happen. You know, when people live together, you end up having politics. Politics just means how you run a city. And a city is a group of people trying to live together. And there's leaders and there's opinions and there's mishaps and there's wrongdoings and the requirement for justice and leadership. And when you have all that together, you have politics. And so 2 Samuel really especially dives into politics as David is in this precarious position of being anointed king by God and anointed king by Judah, but then finding himself in a civil war with the rest of Israel because of the unbelief of Abner. And I really do think it's unbelief. Abner knew better, and we're going to see this in this chapter, and he decided to ignore God's word and start a civil war because he wanted to position himself politically powerfully in Israel. And so we're going to read through this chapter. It's fairly long, so please bear with us. But it's really good and insightful. And we're learning about the establishment of the kingdom. We're learning about people's character. We're learning how to read characters of people through their behavior and their speech. And we're really seeing as well God's faithfulness. And so what we're going to see about God in this chapter is that he just works with David as David seeks to continue to be righteous, even though bad things are happening around him. Uh, God sees him through the challenges and sees him through the misbehaviors of other people too. So without any further ado, let us study the word of God together. Second Samuel 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So this is a summary verse um, explaining that lots of stuff is going on. And then we're going to have a pivotal story with Abner after this. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker because God was with David. Verse 2. The sons were born, sorry, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Abnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And Abnon's going to uh, go down infamously for the rape of his half-sister and being murdered by Absalom. Verse 3. And his second, Chiliab, or Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. I'll stop right there. So Chiliab... Um, kind of disappears from the Bible. We don't hear much about him, and so the scholars suggest that he maybe dies in, as a young man, and that's why he it doesn't appear in the rest of the story. It might be that his life is just glossed over. He doesn't do anything really important worth um, including in the story, but also possibly he passed away. But Abigail does bear David a son. And then the third is Absalom, who is going to be famous for uh, killing Abnon and then trying to take over the kingdom in the second civil war that's in this book. This book starts with a civil war and ends with a civil war, and Absalom is the centerpiece of that. And it's interesting to note that uh, Absalom is a royal son because he is his mother is a princess of Geshur. And later on, when Absalom runs away after killing Abnon, he goes and seeks refuge with his family on his mother's side in Geshur. Verse 4, And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, uh, Shephetiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. 
So there's a few things going on here. Um, Adonijah is only going to be important in the book of Kings when he tries to take the kingdom away from Solomon and is killed for it. But I think this genealogy is happening here for a few reasons. It foreshadows what's coming on with Amnon and Absalom, as well as it gives the sense of the passage of time. David is in Hebron over this time, and he's having children. But it also gives us a sense that not all is well with David. And this is why the book of Samuel exists underneath the, the commands of Moses or the laws of Moses, especially recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And when you're reading Samuel, you're supposed to be familiar with Moses's laws in Deuteronomy and being willing to uh, judge or criticize or review what's going on through the lens of Deuteronomy. And if you go to Deuteronomy, there is a section that talks about the establishment of the kingship. It starts in chapter 7, verse 14, and I'll read it. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Remember, this is a prophecy hundreds of years before it actually happened. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Pausing there. So God foresaw that this would happen through Moses. He didn't like how it happened in Samuel because they wanted a king not to please the Lord and not out of faith, but in order to be like all the nations around them. So the king would, was actually kind of like an idol being set up to replace God instead of faith in God. But there's still rules from Moses about how this should happen. And they, number one, he has to be a fellow Israelite. 16. Only he may not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people of e to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. So don't go back to Egypt because you're being delivered from there, and don't set your hope in horses, but keep your hope in the Lord for military victory. And verse 17, this is the important one. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so what you see here is you kind of see some cracks in David's rule right off the bat. David is acquiring many wives for himself. He has at least six listed here. And he's also going to mention his first wife, the daughter of Saul, that's going to come up. So there's seven wives mentioned here. And their sons are going to vie for control over the kingdom. And so this disobedience to the word of Moses is going to kind of be the field that many bad seeds are going to be sown into and that that is foreshadowed here and if you read this story through the lens of Deuteronomy you should read this and go uh oh David what are you doing like uh, this isn't good you're not obeying God's uh, command through Moses to limit the number of wives you have especially when um, Absalom's mom Maka comes from the king another kingdom so this is like a royal wedding and this is a political uh, connection and and so uh, it's just not good so why is this here it gives the sense of the passage of time it foreshadows characters that are going to be uh, important in the rest of the book and it also gives you a sense that David's making some mistakes even in the early days of his kingship but let's keep going verse 6 while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah and the daughter, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? 
To this day I have kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. Yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. Okay, there's lots going on here. So one of the themes of this whole this chapter is uh, women and royal wives. Uh, we just had that list of David's wives. Now we're talking about what happens with one of Saul's concubines and how that changes the history of Israel. And later David is going to be talking about his wife, the daughter of Saul. But what's going on here is where it's really being revealed that Abner is an unbelieving political manipulator. Uh, the narrator, who is a prophet speaking on God's behalf, describes Abner as making himself strong in the house of Saul. So he is doing political maneuvers. And he's confronted because he ha is sleeping now with one of Saul's concubines. And so when Ishbosheth confronts him, he's right that Saul is doing this because he's trying to posi position himself with political power. And by marrying one of these concubines, he's trying to marry himself into the royal family. He's not royal, but he wants to try to attain to royalty, probably thinking to himself, maybe I'll become king one day. But when he goes into Rizpah and marries her, or takes him for his spouse, her first spouse, um, he's confronted about it. And very interestingly, in verse 8, it says, Abner was very angry over these words, but it doesn't explain why he's angry. And as we read this, um, He's going to act insulted, but he's more likely angry over being exposed because um, his plot has been brought into the light. It's true. It's true what he's doing. Ishbosheth was right to confront him. And then you see um, Abner reveal his heart through his words. One of the themes of uh, the Old Testament narratives is that you're, you're supposed to judge people by their words compared to their actions. And sometimes people will even condemn themselves with their words. Remember in the first chapter, that guy came to David and said, I ended up killing Saul and I've brought his, his, his crown to you. And David says, well, if you're admitting to killing the king, I'm going to kill you because he, whether you did it or not, you know, your, your mouth condemns you for having killed the king. So somebody killed this guy. And so um, this is like one of these things that happens in these stories is where people condemn themselves with their speech, even though they don't realize they're doing this. And so what happens here is you hear Abner actually spiritually condemning himself in his defense of himself. He says, I've been showing steadfast love to your house and have not given you to the hand of David. So he believes personally, he decides who lives and dies and who rules and reigns. He doesn't have faith in God, that God's in charge of this. He says, you know, Ishbosheth, the only reason you're king is because I haven't killed you yet. That kind of thing. Or I haven't let David kill you yet. And then he gets offended about this woman thing because he's exposed. He really was trying to do political machinations through the woman. Um, and now he's like, oh, I wasn't up to anything. Though. Why are you so mad at me? You know, he he's just being defensive and deflective. And then he turns around and he says, you know, God do so to, more, to Abner and more also if I don't accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So now he's having this total shift from it's right for me to establish the kingdom of Saul to actually I'm calling down this oath on me that God is going to punish me if I don't fulfill the Lord's will, which is actually to set up David's kingdom. And so you, when he's saying that, you're meant to say, 
Well, why didn't you do that in the first place? If you knew that the Lord was for David, why did you ever start this multi-year civil war? And so Abner is condemning himself and even calling down this curse on himself for, um, and he thinks he's doing it to like defend himself and punish Ishbosheth for Ishbosheth questioning his motives. But really what's going on is that um, Abner's unbelieving actions are coming down onto his own head and God has set him up for death in one sense because Abner is going to die in this chapter, but we're meant to read this closely and go, oh, Abner actually called this death onto his own head because he's admitting now that he knew better than he did. And as the leader of Saul's army, he knew that David was the next king in line. And by politically manipulating things, he actually um, set himself up for punishment from God. And so Abner's going to go out from here going, do, 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 Abner's the man. I'm going to go and bring the whole kingdom to David. But his own calling down this curse on himself is going to catch up with him really quick. Verse 12, and Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, like on his own behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. Behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. So now he's totally shifted his tune to David. I'm going to bring the kingdom to you. Maybe even thinking in his own heart, maybe I'll just replace David. You know, I'll ingratiate myself into David's rule and maybe take David out. You know, we don't know the depth of his manipulation here. And he said, David, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish, and her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Okay, so what's going on here? This is, again, complicated. Remember, this chapter has this theme about kings and their wives. And so David is willing to make this connection with um, Abner. But he sees that there is this political gap in his life. There is a royal daughter out there who's actually the king's wife and, and somebody else is living with as husband the king's wife and so um, David is looking at this politically as well and saying I need Michal to come back here because she is my wife and she's actually a queen in one sense or a royal princess she's a princess through Saul and she's going to be a queen through marriage to me she can't be out there living with some other guy maybe that other guy will start saying well if i'm married to a queen then that makes me a king or something so similarly to abner um, being with rizpah to advance his own royal status there's this loose end out there with michal and so david says i need you to bring michal to me and maybe it's this sign that abner means it as well because if he'd be taking a risk to bring michal or what but it's this sign it's a power play right um, if I can get Michal back, that even strengthens my kingdom even more this way. Now, unfortunately, there's this guy named Paltiel out there who really loves Michal. He married her, probably in good faith, probably maybe shouldn't have. I think maybe Saul forced this back in the other book. Maybe you can check that out. I'm not sure. But when news arrives that his wife is being taken away, he follows her weeping. And so here's this one woman who is genuinely loved by a man in all of this stuff. Rizpah wasn't loved by Abner. 
Um, David's love for his wives, and we don't really know. He even said earlier that Jonathan's love for him was better than his wives. But Michal actually has a husband who loves her. And so when this political thing happens with Michal having to go back to David, he's falling behind weeping for a long way until Abner like threatens this guy, probably pulled out his sword or spear and said, go home. And so this is just really kind of tragic that this one really loved woman is losing the husband who loves her through all of this intrigue and stuff. And so it's very sad. This is meant to be sad. And we're meant to kind of lament with Paltiel that that he's, he's actually a loving husband compared to all these other guys who are moving around royal princesses to establish their own kingships, which is something God doesn't want. Um, this is a far cry from Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and unashamed, being one flesh. This is miles and miles away from this. And this is miles away from Christ and his church, uh, a king who lays down his life to beautify his wife. And so we're meant to look at this and be like, oh, this is not great. This is not a high point of anyone's kingship here. Verse 17, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you, which should make us say, Why haven't you been doing anything about this earlier? Verse 18, Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the house of Benjamin thought was good to do. So again, this is... You have to have a high view of God's sovereignty over this. Abner is not a good guy. He's not great, mo greatly motivated here. But through Abner, God is bringing about this, this event where the entire kingdom will come to David. That is God's plan. It always was God's plan that the entire kingdom would be under David. And now God is going to use this unbelieving Abner to bring it about. But Abner's not going to get away with his unbelief. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. See, he's being righteous. And the men who were with him, and Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So Ab David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So David is doing this in goodwill. And he really is just accepting what God promised to him. So he's righteous in this, in one sense. And now, and Michal has been delivered to her legal husband. Uh-oh, but here comes providence. Something bad is about to happen. Verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So they repeat that he's gone in peace. David has good, good motives here. He's not really questioning what's going on too deeply. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go. And he's gone in peace. See, they got that line again. They're trying to really establish this. Everybody knows that um, Abner is not being treated as an enemy, but David has received this in good faith. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? So he doesn't mention the in peace part, just that he's gone. You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So remember, Joab has his own beef with Abner because Abner killed Asahel. And so Joab has been probably nursing this bitterness in war and fantasizing one day about defeating Abner and killing him with his own hands. And so when Abner comes, he cannot psychologically accept that this might be the Lord and that David might receive him in peace and that even Abner with his machinations might be doing this uh, 
honestly. He's a dishonest honest, right? He is honestly trying to bring the kingdom to David. He's not trying to spy him out to destroy him. But Joab cannot accept that because of where his heart is at, because of what's happened in the past. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. So he would have sent messengers, go run after these guys, catch them, bring him back. Verse 27, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Okay, so Joab has done really bad. Excuse me. There is a difference between killing someone in battle and murdering someone in the streets. And Joab has lost all sight of this because of his bitterness. So in his head, this is a justified killing because he's doing it for for the blood of Asahel, his brother. This is vengeance. This is uh, uh, a personal vendetta. But there is a distinction here, and it's going to be brought clear. So in verse 28, afterwards, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ur. May it fall upon the head of Joab and all of his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So lots going on here. So David publicly right off the bat says, I'm not responsible for this. He calls down some justice on the household of Joab and um, really lists a bunch of ways that God can show his displeasure with people. Like a discharge means that they wouldn't be able to come into God's presence. Leprosy is a sickness, but also they would be outside of God's presence. I don't know what it means to hold a spindle. Maybe just be, does that mean you're broke all the time? Falls by the sword or lacks bread that's just vulnerable to death. And then we also see that Joab and Abishai were both involved with killing Abner. Abishai is not the leader, but he's again mentioned here. And this event is going to catch up with Joab when Solomon becomes king. And that's when Solomon's going to deal with Joab because Joab has proven himself to be also a kind of a political manipulator and not a man of true faith like David is. Verse 31, I think we're getting close to being done. One more large section here. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. So imagine being commanded by the king to mourn for somebody you just murdered. And King David followed the buyer, so the thing that they carried the body on. And they buried Abner at Hebron. Okay, so imagine the king setting up a grave for someone you just murdered in the house in the city you live in. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day and David swore saying God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down and all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people so we'll stop there that's the end of verse 36 and so David is going into public mode here and he knows that a crime's been committed and he's distancing himself from it and he's mourning over Abner and his death and the crime by having this public lamentation and writing this little poem about how bad it is that happened. And he's even fasting in mourning to show that he's really distancing himself from what happened here. And because of this, the people even gain more respect for David. They see him 
that he didn't do it. They see that he's an honest king. And so his reputation with the people increases, even though David's right-hand man, Joab, has committed this act. 37. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, these sons of Zariah, are more severe than I am. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So this reminds us again as well about David being able to mourn over Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill David repeatedly. David still honored him and mourned him. And Abner, even though Abner kind of called down from the Lord this punishment uh, because he admitted that he was being manipulative instead of submitting to the will of God and establishing David, um, David still mourns for him because he was a great warrior and did fight for Israel and defend Israel under the reign of Saul. And even though in one sense, Joab has, you know, killed somebody who's been leading the battle against David for years, um, David admits that it was done in sin and he calls for a distancing and uh, uh, for the Lord to settle accounts for the sons of Zariah. Um, even though they're family members. He wants the Lord to settle the accounts, but he chooses to not do it himself. I was gentle today, he says. I'm not punishing anybody. I'm not taking vengeance on anybody. I'll leave it up to the Lord. Um, is that are the right call? Maybe. But David is choosing that day to not be a messenger of vengeance, but instead to seek to put an end to the bloodshed that has been happening in Israel by not even um, killing Joab right there. And so... Very complicated. That's the end of the chapter. This is a complicated chapter, but you can see the themes there, like people wrestling over position in kingdoms uh, selfishly, people uh, like the Israel wanting to end the civil war and come together united under David and, and seeing reasons why that didn't happen because people were being personally involved and in trying to position themselves. You see these royal women uh, becoming events for political uh, political machinations and how they're kind of stuck in the midst. You see the sadness of Paltiel, who really is like being a biblical husband, um, and but his wife is taken away from him, and he just mourns and mourns over her, compared to what Abner did with Rizpah and what David's doing with Michal and marrying the daughter of Talmai and all this stuff. You're meant to see that contrast there. David's going to have a problem with at least one more woman in his life with Bathsheba, and that's kind of being foreshadowed here. Um, but over all of this, God is working out his purposes. Over all of this, God is going to unite the kingdom under David. And David is coming out looking good because he is being righteous. Uh, not perfectly often, but righteous as far as he can be from one situation to the next. And that's why the will of God keeps being established to him. Even though people around him are doing unrighteous things, God's working through their unrighteousness, but establishing David in his righteousness. And this is an encouragement for us to be faithful in doing what we know to be pleasing to the Lord in our situation. And not just responding to what other people do to us, but saying always, what will please the Lord for me to do next? And God will work through us, in us, and around us in order to work out his good purpose as we seek to please him first and foremost. And amen. <laughs>